Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Emily Dufton, the host of this channel. And today we'll be talking to Ido Hardikson, author of the new book, American Trip, Set, Setting, and the Psychedelic Experience in the 20th Century. Hardigson is an assistant professor in the graduate program in Science, Technology, and Society at Bar-Ilan University in Israel. Previously, he was a visiting postdoctoral fellow with the Program on Science, Technology, and Society at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and a former journalist. American Trip, released by MIT Press earlier this year, is his first book in English. Ido, welcome to the show. Hi. So before we discuss American Trip, you've had a really interesting professional career. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself and how you transformed from a journalist into a professor. Right. So um, I've worked as a journalist for many years, though I consider my first myself, first of all, a writer. And I've been writing ever since I was a kid. And um, then... Uh, over the years, uh, switching from writing fiction to writing nonfiction, first as a journalist, and then arriving uh, uh, in, or entering into the academy more seriously, I ended up getting really involved in the subject of psychedelics, uh, both as a scholar as well as uh, an activist in this field and an artist. I've had uh, several uh, projects that I've uh, started over the years, uh, psychedelic video museum online, um, uh, psychedelic magazine that I've uh, edited, and um, also my first book, Technomystica, uh, was uh, the first Hebrew book that really um, got into the subject of psychedelics. And um, I, I guess the transition from uh, from this more uh, uh, outside the world outside the academy into the academy was just you know gradual. As I was writing my dissertation and going on uh, on that path, and I think it, it's a transition that I find is is both could, could be frustrating at times when you need to give up some of the liberties that you have as a as a thinker and as a writer when you're outside the academy. But then on the other hand, it also allowed me uh, to go much deeper than I would have otherwise uh, in this research of the history and the theory of, of psychedelics, which is uh, something that I'm very grateful for. In that sense, uh, I think for all the um, crit- criticism that uh, many of us have at times uh, about the Academy, uh, that's some kind of gift that, uh, that it does give you, uh, the opportunity to really uh, enter and uh, dive deep into intellectual subjects that I'm, I'm very grateful for. 
That's fascinating. So, so you've clearly been interested in studying psychedelics and psychedelia for a long time. Were you always interested in American uh, experiences with psychedelics, or were you focusing on the ex- Israeli experience as well? <laughs> um, so, basically, I've started out with this um, with this whole project, uh, trying to prove some kind of theory in the field of science, technology, and society studies, which is a theory that's called uh, social construction of technology, and it's about how society shapes technologies. And it seemed to me, uh, thinking about the case of of LSD uh, in the mid-20th century United States, that that was really the uh, ideal or uh, example or instance to to uh, take this this model, um, a- apply it for the case of psychedelics, and also extend it to show that psychedelics are really this kind of uh, quite unique technology that acts differently, that can expand and uh, on this model and um, add new intricacies into it. So so the. The American story was uh, was something that uh, was, for this reason, first very interesting to me. But then, uh, at the same time, you know, uh, I've always been fascinated uh, by American culture, and particularly take it with the 1960s decade and the different ideas and movements uh, of that time. So, uh, you know, ever since I was a kid, so this kind of project really allowed me to dive into that world uh, and I ended up uh, through it kind of reliving the the 1960s on uh, <laughs> maybe textually only but in a sense uh, it was the um, the coming uh, uh, the coming together of uh, or uh, the realization of a dream of, of living in the 60s that I've had uh, for for many years in, in my life and it, it's funny you should mention by the way the, the Israeli psychedelic experience because uh, right now one of the um, uh, um, offshoots of this whole project is that I think the world is is becoming more and more interested in these questions of psychedelics and culture and of also looking beyond the American perspective, so this book kind of provides uh, an American perspective on the on, on psychedelia. Uh, of, of course, adding to many other works that um, use an American perspective. But right now, I'm actually uh, in the process of writing a history of Israeli psychedelia. So I'm mm. kind of uh, going through the process of you know starting to. Uh, being part of a, a larger project that I'm think I think um, other people are also getting into now of producing the, these more uh, nationally oriented histories uh, of psychedelia uh, that are much in line of what I try to do in the book. Well, that's that's fascinating, and it leads you know, right perfectly into my next question, which was to to unpack your title. Uh, why why is this an American trip? Uh, as you just said, you're writing a new work on the history of Israeli psychedelia. Psychedelics are used worldwide, aren't they? So, so why focus specifically on an American trip? So, right, sure. I mean, psychedelics are used worldwide and have been used in, uh, worldwide for uh, for uh, uh, centuries and millennia. Uh, but one of the key ideas in the book is the idea that the psychedelic experience is highly malleable and that the effects of psychedelics are deeply shaped by the culture they're embedded in. So it's difficult to speak of a universal psychedelic experience. Uh, and that's one of the ways in which the, the book kind of challenges some of the common wisdoms, I think, or, or some of the assumptions that exist around psychedelics, around this idea of the, the psychedelic experience, uh, this kind of, um, of universal uh, entity, uh, objective entity that exists in the world, and what I try to show in the in the book, also by comparing the American experience to experiences from other cultures, um, is how uh, each culture and each subculture tends to produce its own kind of psychedelic experience with distinct features. So the American psychedelic experience uh, is different from the French. Uh, trip or from the Shipibo trip uh, or from the Israeli trip and um, 
and even the American uh, trip, the American psychedelic experience tends to shift and change uh, with the decades. And, and so uh, this is why the book is primarily dedicated to the case of uh, psychedelics in the mid 20th century. And it's trying to create a sort of um, a relativization of the psychedelic experience or just... Um, uh, trying to show that we need to speak about uh, psychedelic experience as something that's also embedded in its time and place, and 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 that's why it's it's called American Trip. Mm-hmm. And, and let me Excellent. add to that uh, um, that that uh, the the idea of the American Trip was also also based on this one uh, recurring uh, notion that you read across many of the uh, discussions about the 1960s decade, this idea that the American society had this, uh, the 1960s were like this sort of trip and that the mm. entire American society went through this experience uh, in the 1960s that was very dramatic, very intensive, very intense. That was much like a trip. Uh, and uh, so I try to uh, look at this uh, idea, take it literally, take it seriously in the book and ask uh, what kind of trip was that? How did the, uh, did the, did the external factors shape that trip? And, and, and really uh, kind of give, a, I would say, kind of a biography of that collective trip, of the American trip of the 60s. That's that maybe the most iconic trip in the history of psychedelia. Isn't that great? I love it when when authors find the perfect title for their work that that essentially summarizes everything that it is they're trying to to grapple with in their work. And I think American Trip is an ideal title for this work. And it's so nice to to hear you really unpack it and and tell tell us exactly what you're referring to, the multitude of things that you're referring to with these two little words. Um, but your subtitle is also really interesting. So your subtitle is Set Setting and the Psychedelic Experience in the 20th Century. You've already talked quite a bit about uh, the 20th century aspect of this. You're focusing primarily on the 60s, although um, you talk about the 1950s as well. But before we talk more about time, there are those two words, set and setting. I was wondering if you could tell us what you mean by set and setting and why these concepts are so important when you're discussing the psychedelic experience. Sure. So uh, set and setting is this uh, idea that's very central to psychedelic theory and to psychedelic practice uh, and something that uh, not only professionals know, but also a lot of uh, uh, lay lay people that or anybody interested in psychedelics. And it's been around since the 60s. And what it basically says it is that the experience of a psychedelic trip is um, depends first and foremost on two types of factors. Uh, first on the set, and that's all of the internal psychological factors like the expectation, the intention, uh, the mood of the person when they're going into the experience. And then the second type, uh, second kind of factors are uh, the setting. And that refers to all the environmental factors like where you are, who you're with, uh, or what your culture tells you about these experiences. And so uh, based on these kinds of contextual factors, the experience can go in many different directions and radically different directions. So the, the psychedelic experience for this reason can be uh, extremely beautiful or, or extremely harrowing, scary, uh, scarring. It can be heavenly, it can be hellish. And that depends on the kind of context that you, that you have for, for the experience. And... Of course, context is always important uh, to whatever experience we have in the world. Uh, Our expectations and intentions and the social environment are always important no matter uh, where we go. But uh, they tend to be even more crucial in the case of psychedelics because, uh, and that's a key key, um, point about psychedelics, this idea that uh, the the word psychedelic actually means uh, mind manifesting, right? That's the translation. And you have this idea mm-hmm. of psychedelics as amplifiers of, of experience. So 
um, they're, they're kind of, uh, they have this tendency to intensify the experience. So in that state, uh, all of these contextual factors uh, become enlarged and they become much more crucial. So that really uh, any passing anxiety can become a full-blown paranoia or otherwise uh, just a, a pleasant view can become a wholly uh, um, uh, ecstatic or uh, epiph- epiphanous uh, experience. And in the case of psychiatric research of the mid-20th century, uh, you really see how that came into place and uh, how different groups who worked under different kinds of, of sets and settings really produced very different kinds of results. And you had, for example, one uh, some groups of researchers that were working under the idea that these drugs produce psychosis and uh, they were giving them to people uh, with um, and telling them, you know, you, you will take this drug and you will go mad for a couple of hours. And, and these people had, yeah, not, not the best kind of uh, introduction uh, before going into, uh, before taking a drug <laughs> generally. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, and they, they would have this experience uh, in, a, in a hospital room and, you know, surrounded by, uh, by uh, psychiatrists or, or, or people that they don't know that often behaved uh, quite impersonally. They would have to uh, go through these very exhausting batteries of tests. So obviously a lot of these people had uh, really awful experiences and and this uh, then uh, shaped the kinds of uh, conclusions that these researchers were uh, were making about these substances while, while actually these were just reflections of the kinds of, of environments uh, that they were creating. And on the other hand, you would have other groups of researchers that would have uh, their uh, subjects um, that would tell them, you know, this drug will make you more creative or more spiritual. It will help you work through your problems. And they would have them uh, spend their time in a comfortable, beautifully set space, um, you know, just uh, listening to records and being there with a therapist or with friends with a lot of support. So very different kinds of experiences. And and the, the, set, the setting is, is so important because that really stands um, at the at the basis of the um, of the central uh, argument, which is about this um, malleability of all this multiplicity of, of, of psychedelic effects and uh, how they depend on context and the broader implication that this dependency has. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the context and the power of suggestion seem uh, so important and so powerful uh, when discussing the psychedelic experience. Um, but the setting specifically, I think, is also a really interesting question because you set your American trip, your book, in the mid-20th century. And I think to many people, psychedelics seem like something from uh, the 1960s writ large, sort of in the cultural imagination, which usually means the late 1960s into the 1970s when um, the hippies were at their at their zenith and there's this you know imagination of Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco and Woodstock and all these other things. But you don't focus only on that period. You actually take readers back to an earlier period as well, uh, discussing the 1950s and early 60s. Why were psychedelics so important during the, the during the mid 20th century? And how did they emerge into the American consciousness uh, at this time? Were they available prior to the 1950s or did they only really emerge mid-century? Right, so uh, you know, I focus on the on, on the nineteen fifties and sixties. Psychedelics became more uh, culturally present, I guess, in the ni- late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies. But the story of uh, psychedelic research and really the moment in which these uh, drugs made made their uh, advent or uh, into uh, 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 the culture and into uh, into science and where their uh, very diverse types of potentialities became uh, became known was already in the 1950s, which was the really the heyday of, of psychedelic research, the 1950s and the early days, uh, the early 1960s, because uh, later on, uh, actually, by the time that these things really got 
um, to become more popular and more um, why more popularized and uh, publicized they were already kind of uh, 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 over with uh, as a as a scientific enterprise or or uh, the the, the uh, psychedelic research was already running into a lot of trouble and um and the psychedelics were were you know they were known uh, to some degree uh, in since the 19th century and of course you had anthropologists going and uh, eating masculine with native tribes and you, you have uh, William James uh, father of American psychology who also had an experience with masculine but really uh, all of this changed when psychedelics uh, when LSD arrived at the scene which was which happened in the early 1950s and that was the case I think for several reasons and one of them uh, a crucial one was that LSD was just so much more active than and potent than than other uh, than other psychedelics so that uh, just uh, one gram of, of LSD was was enough to dose 10,000 people and and this was uh, this was this turned this um, the substance um, into something that could be argued to have uh, uh, immense significance in the sense that it uh, might be indicative of processes that we have in the brain. And, um, and that's part of the reason why psychiatrists became so fascinated uh, with, with this drug in the, in the early 50s. And then were just uh, other uh, cultural reasons that, uh, that ended up um, being the, the real um, uh, the real uh, reasons why why psychedelics became that central uh, in the late fifties and early nineteen sixties, just as American culture was going through this new phase of opening up after mercantilism and trying new paths uh, in art and in the culture and in therapy and and all of these alternative um, uh, movements were kind of simmering uh, where LSD and other psychedelics could really um, um, could really attach to quite well and and become the seeds of the kind of cultural revolution that that they ended up uh, uh, fomenting. Right. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about LSD specifically. How is it different from other psychedelics like psilocybin or mescaline? Uh, you said it's more powerful, but is it different in other ways? And how did it make its way to America? Was it, I, I, I don't believe it was uh, discovered in the United States, was it? So how did it come over here? Right, so LSD was discovered by Albert Hoffman in uh, 1943, and one of the the key thing that uh, really made it so extraordinary, uh, as I've mentioned, is its potency. Because Hoffman, uh, the the famous story is that uh, he was uh, he was trying this uh, this. Dr- this uh, compound that uh, he after having a strange sensation a few days earlier while synthesizing it and he thought how oh, that might that thing might be um uh, psychoactive and he tried the the uh, an amount that he thought would under no circumstances be active it turned out to be a huge dose and lsd <laughs> was yeah and he ended up having this uh epic bike ride back home that celebrated every year to this day um on on bicycle on what's today known as bicycle day on the 19th of, yeah. of april and and so lsd was just uh the idea that um, 100 micrograms uh, uh, and the microgram is one millionth of of a gram uh, were enough to uh, send a person to a a different reality was something uh, that was quite extraordinary at the time, almost unbelievable. And when Hoffman first reported uh, these uh, these results, uh, uh, people at at his uh, firm were actually quite uh, skeptical uh, of that and asking him to to revisit his his conclusions. Um, And and as I said, the the idea that the the thing that made LSD uh, as 
as um, as interesting and as radical uh, as it was uh, thought to be was that uh, it was thought as uh, psychosis mimicking agent, as a psychosomimetic, something that induces psychosis. And psychiatrists had this idea for a long time that you have, um, that psychosis might be caused by some kinds of, of mental um of a psychochemical imbalance or some kind of of uh, substance being that's being secreted by the brain but with mescaline for instance there was uh, this this hypothesis could never really take off because uh, mescaline was only active above a certain range that you should have been able to find in the brain of a patient after uh, after he passes away uh, so so in that sense um you could argue that if we don't find it there, then it's probably false. But with LSD, the idea was that uh, the, if if such minuscule amounts of this substance are enough to cause what people then consider as uh, psychosis-inducing effects, then really um, this drug could be the uh, the key to unlocking the secrets of psychosis. And if we could experimentally produce psychosis, then we might also be able to uh, to learn how to to stop it, to how to neutral uh, to neutralize these kinds of substances and solve the 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 whole uh, problem of, of schizophrenia and psychosis, which was the original uh, promise uh, that people saw in LSD in the early days of LSD research. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Right. So it's incredibly appealing, not necessarily to members of the counterculture at first. And of course, the counterculture is still quite nascent uh, in the 1950s and early 1960s, but powerful, uh, but 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 unique and uh, intriguing to a, a different group of individuals, some of whom are, are quite powerful as far as uh, the government is concerned. So you know, in your in your introduction, you say that you don't offer a tidy story in American Trip, which makes a lot of sense to me as a drug historian myself, the phrase I most often employ when discussing any kind of story about drug use and policy is that it's complicated. But you do organize your book around five LSD researchers and seven visions of LSD that, as you write, uh, collectively make up the plurality of psychedelic identity during the mid-20th century. Now, I already knew some of these five people, like Timothy Leary, but others were new to me. So who are the five people that you write about and why did you choose them? Right. So there are five main figures, as you said, and they're kind of overlapping with the different schools, the seven schools of, uh, of LSD research that I, I look at in the book. And, um, you know... Uh, Choosing to have these uh, these figures to really uh, have something to uh, identify with or really uh, look closer on and and having some kind of uh, an accept a live example of these kinds of uh, cultural tendencies and trends was something that that helped uh, bring more uh, depth and and just uh, the the possibility of. Uh, of of uh, just humanization to to the story, and each of these of these figures is is 
quite uh, quite different from, from the rest. So the first one is uh, Max Trinkel, who was a German psychiatrist who emigrated to the U.S. and became the first investigator to work with LSD in the States. And he pushed that idea of uh, LSD as a psychotic mimetic compound, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a compound that induces psychosis. And, and so... Uh, he had uh, a tremendous impact on that whole movement, the experimental psychosis movement, and although this kind, uh, and he was also important in his uh, in being one, among the first that to write about the importance of extra pharmacological factors in shaping the effects of LSD or of sense setting, though he didn't call it that and he didn't uh, really take his conclusions to the last point of realizing how he himself was actually shaping the effects of, of LSD as he was conducting his, his experiments. And, and that's why he eventually uh, did fall into the trap of of identifying LSD as an essentially psychotomimetic drug without realizing that that it's it's a broader story than that. Um, the second researcher I, I look at is uh, Sidney Cohen, who was a psychiatrist at UCLA School of Medicine. And he became intrigued about psychedelics after having an experience with LSD and finding that it actually did not have the kind of effect that he was expecting, which was uh, he, he came into the experience expecting a psychotomimetic uh, experience. So he was expecting to have this harrowing experience of psychosis, but um, it turned out to be something very different and quite beautiful. So uh, that made him curious and he started to run studies on LSD, uh, trying to find out if it could have a therapeutic effect. And this is where my third figure enters, which is Betty Eisner, who was a psychologist that uh, Cohen invited into his team and put in charge of optimizing the set and the setting in his uh, experiments in order to, to achieve the, the best results. And it, it, was, uh, it was really nice also to, to write about Eisner because she's not a very well-known figure, uh, but she, she actually she's one of the earliest researchers to write about the idea of using um, contextual elements or uh, an, a sense setting to optimize psychedelic experiences. And in that sense, she's kind of a mother figure to a lot of uh, what later came on in the world of, of uh, psychedelic therapy and to this day. And she was also uh, an only woman in the world of, of, of men. And in, in many of these conferences, uh, you know, you would have these uh, uh, 30 uh, males uh, in, in the picture and, and, and Betty Eisner as the only one. So it, <laughs> it was... Um, so it was n nice to uh, kind of uh, r redeem her story and 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 show how also uh, the uh, the very um, uh, significant influence that she also had on this development of the uh, idea of sense setting. Right, replacing that pioneer back into the story. I think that's an incredibly uh, important uh, contribution that this book makes. So as a woman, I appreciate your story. You're telling the story of Betty Eisner and putting her back into the tale. <laughs> And, 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 the, and the interesting thing also, in, I mean, when I'm looking at Cohen and, and Eisner and they're two separate figures, though they're involved in the same kind of research, but they eventually part ways. Uh, and, and this parting of ways is also interesting in a way because Eisner became more and more enthused with psychedelics, uh, with spiritual ideas like cosmic consciousness and reincarnations, while Cohen at the same time became increasingly critical of psychedelic research and, and published some of the most influential early papers on the risks of, of psychedelics. So they eventually uh, uh, went uh, separate ways. Um, and then I have the, uh, as a fourth figure, uh, I have the figure of, of Timothy Leary, who, who's of course uh, much better known than all of my other figures. And uh, he was a Harvard psychology professor that became interested in, in psychedelics and quickly became immersed in, the, in this world and became this kind of uh, 
It was the evangelist that got kicked out of Harvard, had run-ins with the law, and uh, eventually became a symbol for the entire psychedelic counterculture and also a scapegoat for not only for the American government, but to this day to uh, psychedelic scientists and his, and, mm-hmm. and that, that often uh, uh, you know, blame him for, for the entire um, uh, for, for the entire sad tale of what happened to, to psychedelic research uh, later on, which is often blamed on, on Leary and his very uh, extravagant and, and flamboyant uh, uh, character and behavior. Um, yes. And, and then the, 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 the fourth, uh, the, the, the fifth figure, the fifth and last one is, uh, is Myron Stolarov, who was a very successful electrical engineer uh, with an interest in personal development. And he became interested in LSD in the early 1960s. He founded the International Foundation of Advanced Studies, which worked uh, from Palo Alto where that in, in the area that later became known as Silicon Valley. And that whole chapter is called uh, Psychedelics Go to Silicon Valley. And it's mm-hmm. about uh, the use of psychedelics for... Um, for technological innovation, he had a group that was composed mainly of engineers and other technical people. And their most most famous project was one where they gave LSD and mescaline to groups of scientists and engineers and technicians that were stuck solving uh, professional problems and trying to find out if psychedelics could contribute to technological innovation. And it turns out that they could. It, it was only a pilot study, but it led to uh, several, uh, to many breakthroughs for for these people and to patents and to products. So that's really one experiment that uh, I think would be very interesting to repeat in this newer wave of, of psychedelic renaissance that we're currently going through. Yeah, imagine what uh, imagine what our iPhones could become if uh, <laughs> people at Apple were given more psychedelics exactly. to work through oh, their yeah. work through their professional challenges, right? Um, that's great. So you also then focus on what you call seven visions of LSD and its users. What do you mean by this phrase? And which seven visions did you focus on? Right. So uh, seven visions of LSD and its users. Uh, uh, that's uh, seven distinct visions that existed in the 1950s and 1960s uh, in these different uh, researcher groups or user groups uh, about what LSD is and and what's the proper way to use it. So you had, uh, at the time, different groups working with very different assumptions and ideas about what this drug does and reporting and creating very different kinds of sets and settings in terms of uh, what kinds of expectations and intentions they were uh, 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 creating in their in their subjects and what kind of environments they were creating for them, what kinds of activities they asked them to take part in. So um, these seven groups, to, uh, I describe them as microclimates of, of seven settings. So thinking about uh, the entire American society as the, the sense setting for the uh, grander American trip. And then uh, in, in, in the books that go that describe these uh, seven visions of LSD, I go into the, these microclimates of, of smaller uh, subgroups or, or um, subcultures that were interested in... Um, in creating uh, or achieving uh, specific effects from or from these substances, and the first group is the psychedelic group that I've already mentioned. A second group was the military and the CIA who were interested in using psychedelics in battle as incapacitating agents, or or for torture, or for special operations like slipping LSD into Castro's teacup before he's about to give a speech and embarrass himself. Um, so that that's uh, a second line of, of research. The third one is the psychotherapeutic one uh, that we're also, uh, that's, I guess, today the most, uh, uh, 
the most well-known and the most prominent in the world of psychedelics he uses psychedelics in in psychotherapy and in psychiatry more generally then you have the fourth school that was about uh, the spiritual use of lsd the use of lsd to induce mystical experience experiences and you of course have the very famous good friday experiment that timothy leary ran in the early 1960s where he gave psilocybin to a group of uh, a divinity students um and who and with a double blind with a uh, with another group that did not get any of, of the psilocybin and uh, uh, produced for the first time this result that showed uh, quite unequivocally that LSD, uh, the psilocybin and psychedelics are are quite able to induce very powerful um, uh, spiritual experiences, something that was, of course, uh, widely known throughout cultures uh, for, uh, throughout the years. But, uh, you know, that was the first time that it was uh, shown scientifically. And uh, in the new wave of, say, uh, of psychedelic research, that was also one of the first um, results to become to become replicated by the Johns Hopkins team that, that ended up doing a 2006 study showing how psychedelics induced mystical experiences and corroborated that, that earlier research. So this question was more or less decided later in the decade when psychedelics really entered the cultural scene and you had people like the Beatles and, and Jimi Hendrix and Pink Floyd and, and psychedelic uh, poster art really coming into, into uh, the cultural scene. And at that point, it was already decided for the culture that psychedelics are this kind of cultural stimulant that everybody became interested in and in the by the end of the 60s you already had like groups uh, like modern groups like the temptations interested in doing uh, uh, psychedelic music uh, uh, quote unquote um, the the sixth group is the tech innovation group that uh, I I dis- I oh, this, that I discussed earlier so I won't get into that and the seventh and last one is the use of the uh, psychedelics for political reasons so in the 1950s that was mostly about the use of psychedelics for peace building and we have reports about lsd sessions being run in the with in the un with the un members and uh, and heads of states and uh, and and ministers and in the late 1960s that became more about the radicalizing effects of LSD, using LSD to raise political consciousness in the in in the left, in revolutionary groups, and eventually leading all the way to the more radicalized guerrilla warfare of of groups like the Weather Underground, who were deeply involved with with LSD and saw it as kind of a a tool to uh, awaken the the political uh, consciousness of of their of their um, of their members. Right. I feel like there's there's a growing understanding uh, in some realms of the role that LSD has played on a governmental level. Uh, for example, I feel like Americans have a growing understanding of the MK Ultra experience, experiments uh, in the 1960s. And uh, I'm thinking, too, of Stephen Kinzer's new book, um, Poisoner in Chief, which is about Sidney Gottlieb and the CIA's search for mind control. So we're starting to understand a little bit more about the Interest the federal government and the military had in this substance, uh, and for for kind of a one might one might say you know somewhat suggestive uses. Uh, but your book, I feel like, does a, a really nice job of expanding our understanding of how these visions of LSD, what it could do, what it could achieve, was used for both nefarious and, and very powerful uh, and oftentimes very positive uh, outcomes as well. Um, but your book as a whole is 10 chapters long. And as you're kind of going through those seven visions, uh, they line up um, in some ways with the with the first seven chapters, which sort of provide a historical overview, moving through LSD research in the 50s and 60s and exploring the role that set and setting played in each of these instances. 
but in your last three chapters, you also analyze the ways in which LSD interacts with American society. Uh, you say that there is a deep sense of cultural embeddedness of psychedelics. I really, I really like that phrase, and that these drugs have a culturally dependent nature. So what do you mean by the cultural embeddedness of psychedelics? Uh, how have psychedelics like LSD interacted with American society? And how does American society interact or has it interacted with, with psychedelics? Right. So when you look at the story of, of psychedelics in the, in the 1960s, you can see that a lot of the, um, of the things that LSD and psychedelics were assumed to do and a lot of the qualities that were ascribed to them were actually, in a sense, uh, a reflection of the preoccupations of American society at the time and of different cultural trends that just became kind of attached to the story of psychedelics. So, for example, um, in the 1960s, the psychedelic experience was highly sexualized, and you had people like Timothy Leary telling readers of Playboy that a woman on LSD will have hundreds of orgasms in, in one session. And, and you had uh, these books like The Sexual Paradise of LSD, and you had this general idea that LSD opens the gate to a new world of, of liberated polymorphous sexuality of the kind that writers like uh, Marcuse, Herbert Marcuse were talking about, a multidimensional sexuality, uh, a kind of utopian eroticism. Um, so uh, when you look at it from a cross-cultural perspective, you find that really um, it does, th this kind of... Um, of assumption about psychedelics being sexual enhancers is quite foreign to to a lot of the uh, the traditional uses of psychedelics in in shamanic uh, uses. Uh, sex is a big no no, and um, actually you're supposed to be sexually abstinent for a very long time to to get anywhere with your initiation with, with psychedelics, and you can see that actually. Uh, the whole uh, sexual uh, connection was really related to uh, the sexual revolution of the 1960s and to the fact that uh, psychedelics were mostly used by these very young people that were into free love. And, and right. th though that became later assumed to be, uh, or at the time it was assumed uh, to be uh, quite a central aspect of the, of the effect of these drugs. And, 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 um, and you, you can see that in, in other instances, uh, for example, uh, psychedelics were thought to be something that uh, makes you question authority, that makes you think for yourself, um, and uh, that, that, are, uh, that make people uh, instinctively rebellious and anti-war, anti-money, uh, anti-psychiatry, anti-whatever. And, and this is one of the, of the oft-repeated uh, maxims of psychedelic culture. And Terence McKenna, who was uh, one of the uh, leading uh, psychedelic thinkers of, of the 80s and 90s, he, he said it best when he said, you know, if, uh, it doesn't matter if you're a Hasidic rabbi or a Marxist-Leninist or a rationalist scientist, psychedelics will make you question your worldview and and then <laughs> and then you look at, at these other societies uh, where psychedelics are used traditionally and and you find that actually their psychedelics are not used to uh, question or destabilize social norms but on the contrary they're, they're used to instill the values of, of the society and to enhance the social cohesion so they don't enhance the generation gap uh, they're seen as a generational bridge and uh, they're not a countercultural technology they're a pro-cultural technology and the reason that they became so associated with this rebelliousness individualism in the in American society of the mid 20th century was really again uh, because of this whole phenomena of the counterculture that became associated with psychedelics and that was uh, so much about this non-conformism. So those are just uh, two examples of ways in which uh, these broader cultural trends uh, 
intervened to kind of shape how people approached and thought about these these substances in ways that later also changed the the experience of the experiences of people change the expectations, the intentions, and, and the kind of uh, the whole scene and uh, and discourse around these agents. Right. It's it's like uh, it's the, the question of the chicken and the egg in the 1960s. What came first, LSD or anti-authoritarian attitudes? Absolutely. And you know, both were sort of feeding off of each other and 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 um, emboldening each other. That's fascinating. Uh, one of the other arguments that you make is that the role of set and setting should be considered when making drug policy. And I think this is a really, really intriguing idea. How could America craft better drug laws with these concepts in mind? Right. So one of the of the stories that I, I, uh, that I talk about in the book is the... Uh, it's based on a paper by this uh, sociologist Richard Boons, uh, published in the 1970s, where where Boons uh, looked at the at the at the growing rate of of bad trips in the late 1960s, and he argued that that had to do with this environment of paranoia and a deep suspicion. Of, of, psychedel- of psychedelics that the American government was uh, was uh, advocating or, or supporting at the time. And so we can see that uh, these kinds of uh, anti-drug campaigns or um, the kinds of uh, attitudes that governments and society at large uh, creates around mind-altering experiences can really have a deep influence about how people approach these uh, these substances. And again, it's very it's very different if you approach them from uh, from a Western perspective of I don't know getting hammered or just uh, trying to w- w- wipe out your brain. I'm, I'm giving these very uh, extreme examples, but of course, uh, Western society has had a very troubled relationship with with mind altering experiences, and it, it and it achieves very different kinds of results than say hmm. the kinds of experiences that people have often in in traditional societies where they're used as part of a, in a ritualistic setting as something that's that's meaningful so when our society when our uh, when the state or when our government um, tells us that these substances are wrong that the, uh, the people using them are uh, are bad people uh, that they're when they're really distorting information about them to to make them seem more scary or dangerous and uh, you know people talk about fake news today but uh, but in the 1960s American government was spreading loads of fake news about <laughs> psychedelics you know that they're causing chromosome damage people were worried at the time that they would have mutant kids because the government was telling them that and and that it fries their brain and and all sorts of stuff so when you have all these things uh, and they're actually causing real harm so i would argue that um rather than going on this uh anti-drug uh crusades that actually end up creating these uh, fear-based environments where people uh, are much likelier to experience uh, anxiety and experience um, just distress. Uh, we, we do better uh, if we want to minimize harms and maybe even maximize benefits if we think about the kinds of tools that we give to people in our society and think about drug education, uh, real drug education, in the sense of teaching people about the effects, the, the dangers and the potential benefits or, or, or just, you know, the, the, also the, the, the real, uh, the, the positive sides, because uh, there are some positive uh, effects that the drugs have, otherwise people won't, won't, wouldn't use them. So, mm-hmm. so if, if, if people got an honest kind of, of education that really allowed them to approach uh, psychoactive substances in a way that's, uh, that's more fruitful and not based on just on kind of um, state 
produced uh, uh, fear and and ignorance. <laughs> well, I wish I had confidence to to say that the American government would not produce uh, anti drug propaganda, but um, I don't I don't know if I don't know if that'll ever be the case. But there are certain areas in the U.S. that do seem to be um, uh, listening to your argument. Uh, Denver, Colorado had decriminalized the possession of uh, psilocybin mushrooms um, a year or two ago. Uh, listeners can can give me the exact date uh, later in their comments. But where I live in Washington, D.C., um, we're actually letting residents vote on decriminalizing the possession of um what are referred to as psychedelic plant medicines next week uh, during the presidential election on November 3rd. Up the street in Baltimore uh, at Johns Hopkins University, researchers are studying the very positive and beneficial effects of psychedelics on treating things like PTSD and depression. So what are your thoughts on this renewed interest in the medical benefits of psychedelia? And what can the history of the 1960s tell us about our current moment? Can it can it warn us away from anything, and can it direct us in the right direction? Right. So, um, first of all, it, it's it's an incredible uh, moment to be alive these days. As as, as somebody interested in, in psychedelics or as a psychedelic researcher, because really uh, everything that's happening today is kind of science fiction to anyone that was interested in these uh, in these agents uh, 15 or 20 years ago, uh, there was just nowhere on the horizon that uh, these things would come back from being a complete taboo uh, uh, right. s- uh, blamed for all the evils of the world into becoming something that the FDA designates as breakthrough treatment and that receives um, investor interest and that's being publicized very positively across the, the press and um, and really the the medicalized um, uh, the medicalization of, of psychedelics definitely uh, helped a great deal uh, and in in achieving that uh, new status and uh, psychedelic research in that sense followed maybe uh, on the footsteps of the medicalization of, of uh, cannabis and how that also changed um, the public approach to uh, to marijuana. Um, yes, and- the history does seem... I, I noticed that when I was reading your book, I thought the history of <laughs> medical marijuana in the 1990s uh, seems very... Um, parallel to the medicalization of psychedelics today and how that it has um, right. increased the social embrace of these drugs now that they are no longer considered anathema, but, but potential panaceas for uh, problems and diseases and illnesses and traumas that otherwise don't have uh, really effective medications. We're going back right. to essentially these plant medicines that, right. that had been, as you said, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, were considered the boogeymen of American culture, that they were, they were responsible for everything wrong that had gone on and now we're looking at these substances as potential uh, benefits and, and healers for problems that we, we don't otherwise know how to address. It is a fascinating transformation that is led uh, by recognition of the, the medical benefits that had been so long denied <laughs> for decades. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and, you know, if, if we look at uh, the story of the, of the 1960s, uh, we can see that so many of these uh, seven uh, visions that I describing the book are 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 back now and you know it started with the medicalized but we also have more and more interest in the the creative side also the the technical side the psychometric research is is still active and we have uh, these days uh, research going on here in israel for example of uh, bringing together israelis and palestinians to drink ayahuasca so we also have uh, the the wow. political aspect yeah so uh, except, oh, wow. <laughs> except for the cia i think everybody are back on board and uh, <laughs> i don't know about the cia maybe there too but they're not letting anyone know um <laughs> There'll be a book about it in 50 years. Uh, then, possible, then we'll know. <laughs> very possible. Uh, uh, but I, I think that um, at the same time, we're also seeing new strains of, of discussions and and roles uh, that uh, that are appearing, and uh, you know, and ways in which psychedelics also reflect the current set and setting. So. 
there's a lot more talk of using psychedelics to increase everyday functioning and productivity, such as in the discourse about microdosing in the office by uh, people in creative uh, industry and so on and so forth. Um, there's uh, a lot more discussions around the subject of, of identity, which is quite... Um, uh, of course, uh, in, in tune with, with the times and with the concerns and, and discourse of, of our time. And there's also a lot of concern about the commercialization of, of this culture and the co cooptation of psychedelia by corporations uh, that's quite... Uh, also, uh, th that's arriving together with concerns about medicalization and the um, and the, the concern that uh, the medical uh, vision wants to kind of overrun the, the other ones, or or uh, or that we that there's there's a risk that it might overrun the other potentialities, and that's really for me this. This book is, in a sense, a love song to LSD and its plurality of possibilities and and its multiplicity. And in that sense, I would like, as a, as somebody who's interested in in these substances, to see to not see any one school, uh, not the spiritual, not the medical, not the creative, reach a kind of hegemony, and and. And the story of, of the 60s uh, teaches us really that uh, psychedelics have the ability to really kind of transform and take on whatever it is that we're throwing at them. So we need to be aware of the kinds of ideas and notions that we're letting, uh, that we're using as, as we're letting these agents back into society and be aware that the kind of cultural setting that that we have around us that we're creating has really has the potential of shaping how the effects of these drugs are later manifested in the society so it's a call basically for self-reflection also on a a social and cultural level uh, about not just uh, uh, taking these uh, these uh, agents as um, uh, you, you know as uh, um, already <laughs> sorry about that uh, right it's, it's like yeah. the you know because as you said you know the the definition of psychedelic is mind manifestation right if we if psychedelics reveal what is already inside of us uh we have to be somewhat careful if we're going to open this pandora's box because we have to be aware of we, we should probably know before going into it too deep what what it is that we're going to find i do deeply hope that they would be responsible for world peace <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to world war three but i think you're right what you what your research has shown and what your your emphasis on and setting points out is how uh, distinctly important it is that we understand that psychedelics don't bring something new to the table. They reveal what's already what's already inside of us for, for good or for ill. And I think that's a really critical uh, component when discussing the future uh, legal, uh, spiritual, artistic, and medical understandings of how we use these drugs. Right. And, and, and they can open also so many new possibilities and they can uh, lead the way to so many uh, paths of, of development. But all of this is always dependent on, on the kinds of environments that we create for, uh, for really this experimentation. And as you said, it, it can lead in, in many directions and uh, as, as very uh, valuable tools, we need to be aware that we're able to use or misuse them and it matters how we approach them, not only as individuals, but also as societies and cultures. Right, so it's up to us. It's a lot right. of responsibility. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time on this absolutely fascinating conversation. But before we let you go, I'd love to know what you're working on now. What is your next project? Right. Uh, so, you know, th th there's... Uh, um, 
there's so many books that I, I want to write and I have a list of, of several dozens that, that I'm hoping to write someday. Uh, wow, several dozens? Yeah, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I, I don't know if they're all that great, but at least the, the idea is there. And, um, but if, if you, you've got to choose, uh, you've got to mm. choose one, you can write them all. And, and there's this one book that I really want to, to get to writing, which is kind of a continuation and a remake of my first book, Techno Mystica. Uh, and that's because uh, my first published book, which was published in Hebrew in 2009, uh, which was about media ecology, about how different media environments shape consciousness, shape our experience in the world. Um, and uh, and there uh, I talk not only about digital media and, you know, how things like a smartphone or uh, or a computer shape your experience uh, or shape consciousness, but also drugs and nutrition and uh, urban landscapes and, and garments. And and as I was approaching the end of American trip, I, I realized that I was actually writing my first book all over again, only with a different emphasis, because set and setting is all about how these environments shape uh our awareness and consciousness only only with sense setting the focus is on psychedelics and how that happens uh, within a psychedelic experience uh, so in a sense i'd like to go back and revisit that original hunch that i had in technomystica and and try to produce a more informed mature version this time in english and that's informed <laughs> by by both by the this whole uh, excursion into the idea of sense setting and the theory of sense setting and also by the idea of uh, ideas of media ecology uh, uh, that's uh, a theoretical school and create a kind of guide to media environments and how they shape our minds which is a very grand project but i i like grand grand projects <laughs> Well, when it's released, I look forward to talking about it with you here on the New Books Network. Uh, so thank you so much. I really want to thank you for being on this show today. I've absolutely enjoyed our conversation. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy of American Trip, especially if you live in areas where psychedelics might be legalized or decriminalized soon. Bone up on the history of this. And thank you so much, Ido. Uh, really an enjoyable conversation. And I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.